1: This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to new books in science, technology, and society. I recently spoke with Helen Curry, senior lecturer in the Department of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Cambridge, about her new book, Evolution Made to Order Plant Breeding and Technological Innovation in 20th Century America, published in 2016 by the University of Chicago Press. Curry discussed the origins of this book, growing, if I may, out of a convergence between the history of gardening and a course on genetic engineering and the ownership of life.
0: Well, this book originates in the research that I did for my doctoral dissertation, which was in the history of science. And so at the time when I was casting around for even just research projects as a graduate student, I was taking a course on engineering and the ownership of life and I hadn't necessarily been thinking much about things like genetic engineering, plant breeding, and, and, and agriculture, um, but I was in a context of, uh, of searching for topics in that area. I had long been interested in the history of gardening. Um, so it was actually encountering an advertisement, and it's an advertisement that's actually one of the illustrations in the book. It was an advertisement from Burpee Seed Company, Burpee was one of the largest uh, flower and vegetable seed companies, mail order, in the United States in the middle, early and middle 20th century. But it was an advertisement from Burpee Seeds around 1940 for a flower that they called the tetramarigold. Uh, and the tetramarigold they advertised as the first ever flower created by a chemical. Uh, And I found that really striking, this 1940s advertisement selling the genetically modified flower to American gardeners. Um, And it was researching the history of the the tetra marigold, which had been developed using a chemical technique for manipulating chromosomes that I then um, now have have discussed at length in the book. Um, But uh, exploring that technique and then other tools that people used in the 20s, uh, 30s, 40s, 50s to manipulate genes and chromosomes and then to really uh, explore how those tools circulated, how they were talked about, how people imagined what they might make possible um, that that launched me into the the larger project that became the dissertation and now eventually the book.
1: I asked her about the book's contribution, seeing a potential intervention as challenging a received popular narrative that the genetic manipulation of life is something that emerges with molecular genetics. And Curry pushed to suggest that her book seeks to recover the enthusiasm with which scientists and amateurs saw themselves as using tools to affect specifically genetic diversity.
0: Well, I think that there's it's not necessarily um, so straightforward as challenging a received narrative. I think there's been a lot of work both by uh, historians and sociologists of science and others, and then also narratives within the, the plant breeding community or um, people who think about science policy. There's a story that's reminding people that that... The ability to manipulate and modify life in dramatic ways didn't necessarily start in the 1970s with the tools of molecular genetics, right? So there's a way in which my book is part of a a, a larger narrative that many different people have been um, contributing to. Um, what I think is that the the or the way in which my book really speaks to that story is by showing that there were these tools that were explicitly conceived of as tools for changing genes, for changing chromosomes, for really entering into the organism and and creating um, uh, dramatic changes. Uh, and that I think previously when analogies had been made between you know, modern genetic technologies and and earlier things that we might have done, it hasn't always been through drawing a connection that is also at the level of a genetic technology. Um, So to the extent that I've been able to really explore in detail um, tools that work at that scale as also being part of our our history of genetic engineering, um, that's really where I I contribute to, to enriching this picture.
1: One of the most refreshing aspects of this book is how it situates amateurs and users alongside scientists and companies attempting to innovate at a large scale.
0: The, the, the focus and the amount of attention that ends up being given in the book to people that we think of as not scientists, as laypersons or whatever the word is that's preferred, amateurs, uh, amateur experimentalists, um, that really was something I hadn't sought out necessarily at the beginning, but rather something that kept emerging from the material and something that I really struggled at times, I think, to to figure out for myself what exactly was their role. I think in some ways, for me, the importance of the story of amateur experimenters is the reminder that it provides of of really the widespread interest or the extent of the spread of interest in these various tools for manipulating living organisms, for finding ways to make plants into the kinds of plants we might imagine we we want to have in the world. And so, and so that the ambitions of engineering life weren't constrained in the ways that we might sometimes imagine they are to laboratory settings or to industrial research settings, but rather were were shared by many different kinds of people who had different kinds of goals. And so um, the, the role of amateurs, I think, is really one of amplifying the discussion and the conversation um, that emerged around these tools especially as they were developed within laboratory settings initially um, but became something you know it's it's the dialogue somehow that then pushes people in professional research settings to do more um, to 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 explore other different kinds of possibilities they might not have uh, considered at the outset um, so that there's uh, it 's not two distinct roles, maybe in some ways, the role of amateurs versus the role of those professional scientists, um, but rather the 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 role that they each have in this um, this conversation um this dialogue um, which produces the the hopes and expectations for technologies that are uh so evident, I think when exploring this history.
1: following this, I asked Curry. How does one go beyond the traditional archives of the history of science, publications and institutional files, and correspondence, to recover the work of amateur agricultural experimenters?
0: Well, so for example, the the, the e- experimentation of amateurs with the, the plant alkaloid colchicine, which causes the doubling of chromosomes, that's really the part of the of the story that I'm telling here where amateur experimentation comes out the strongest. And in order to explore that story, uh, in some ways it depended also on those traditional archives of the history of science. So um, what I found uh, probably the most compelling and interesting pieces of evidence about amateur experimentation were the letters that individuals had written to Uh, professional scientists uh, in their home settings, um, asking for advice, for input, for suggestions about what kinds of uh, chemical solution they should use, what kinds of experiments they should carry out. Um, And so those letters of the amateur experimenters had become incorporated into the the archives of the scientists. Um, So there were a couple of instances of that. Um, There were also for the 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 chromosome uh, tinkering story, uh, uh, at least as it relates to home gardens, there were evidence of uh, amateurs or there was evidence of amateurs that I drew from magazine articles or gardening magazines where individuals had written in to describe the kinds of experiments that that they'd undertaken to share um, their experience with others who might be also interested in, in undertaking the same kinds of experiments. So you have this, you know, and it's the same kinds of magazines that you might see for other amateur science communities. So things like popular mechanics or, um, uh, these, these kinds of places where you have exchange about other, other kinds of technical knowledge. Um, and so that was the, that kind of literature provided access to, um, yeah, other other forms of evidence in and in exchange among the amateur experimenters I was writing about.
1: Evolution made to order is divided into three parts, one for each of the major technologies explored. X-rays, colchicine, and atomic energy.
0: Yeah, so... The As you've just pointed out, the the book is right in in three parts, and each one deals with a different technology. But for each technology, I really try and explore the ways in which that technology is not just not just telling the story of that technology, but using that to explore how people imagined innovating living things. I think we have a lot of great histories of uh, innovation broadly. And I wanted to think about how those stories that we've told about mechanical innovation or, or electrical innovation or kind of more, more, inert, <laughs> um, more inert objects as they are, are created and, and um, uh, produced in industrial settings often, um, to take the lessons we've learned there and bring them to the history of plant breeding or, or breeding more generally, how we try and create new kinds of, of living things.
1: The first section discusses how X-rays were part of a broader project to industrialize agriculture, and I asked Curry if she could unpack that further.
0: So the X-ray story, what what um, is really striking when going through the historical evidence there, is the extent to which, when it was first discovered that X-rays could be used to induce genetic mutation, the idea that this would be a tool for creating quickly for creating efficiently for creating affordably a whole range of inheritable variation which could then be put to use by plant breeders. Um, so it's always talking about speeding up evolution or accelerating evolution. Um, and I was really curious to 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 understand and make sense of that language and make sense of why it would be so appealing to speed up evolution. Um, and of course, um, thinking about this from the perspective of the history of plant breeding, if we think about how plant breeders go about doing their jobs, um, one of the fundamental uh, kind of aspects or, or even to some extent bottlenecks in breeding is having access to the kinds of inheritable variation, the kinds of you know genetic traits, as we think of them, uh, that you might need in order to produce, say, a, a kind of uh, corn or a kind of wheat uh, that you'd like to see in the field. So you might need a plant that has a resistance to a particular kind of disease, or you want, might want a crop that's going to be tolerant to drought and and to, to to hot weather. And so breeders go out searching for plants that exist in the world that have those genetic traits that they need uh, and then to incorporate those traits basically into established lines or to create new lines. Um, And so this search for heritable variation is a fundamental part of how plant breeding works. And uh, to then sort of bring back, come back to the the X-ray story, um, what X-rays promised was essentially a way of kind of ending uh, if you will, that quest for uh, heritable variation, which would have taken breeders to search through established collections or or search out in the field for the kinds of variation they're looking for, instead you could put uh, a plant variety. This was the what was imagined at least. Put a plant variety. Um, uh, uh, in, in the laboratory, uh, it, or, or take your x-ray machine out into the field, as in the, the photograph that you referred to, Mikey, um, expose it to radiation, and then from that have a whole slew of heritable variation generated, which you could search amongst in order to find the, the trait that you needed. And this would somehow be not just speeding up evolution, but speeding up the process of breeding new plant varieties, right? And so when I talk about the idea of industrializing biological innovation, uh, that's what I mean, is really this idea that a process that was seen to be subject to the vagaries of nature could be somehow uh, harnessed and controlled in new ways by a newly technologized set of, of plant breeding specialists,
1: one of the big picture issues Curry grapples with in the book is how to treat successes and failures. Failed technologies can be foils to broader cultural situations, but what does their cumulative legacy suggest?
0: Well, right, The the as with many technologies, I think, but um, particularly true of the ones that I look at, um, there's huge interest and enthusiasm for um, making the x-ray work in the way that I've just described. And what ends up happening is that, you know, it turns out that applying massive doses of radiation to plants uh, sometimes may produce a trait that you're interested in, but it will it's completely scattershot. Uh, So you're irradiating thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of organisms, in many cases, at least in this era, with massive doses of radiation. Um, And as is quickly pointed out by scientists working in this field or in related areas, um, even if you do produce something that is of interest, the likelihood that you have produced along with it all kinds of Derangements and uh or or other kind of deleterious changes in the organism that you're working with that that chance is very high um so so you are not going to have just created one desirable change you might create one change um that you that you're interested in and a uh, a whole lot of things that you you really wish you hadn't created um, and Basically, that it’s still easier in the long term to work with the variation that appears in nature, um, the wealth of biological variation that occurs over um, evolutionary and, and human history. And so so with the x-ray machine, really what you see is uh, if the, the demonstration uh, of x-ray induced genetic mutation happens in 1927, even by 1934, 1935, there's only a few people that, at least I've found record of, still working in this area, experimenting with the technology, and um, the only the only. Evidence of a successful crop that comes out of this is something that's not, it's almost kind of rediscovered. I think it's in the 1950s. There's some experimenters who've kept alive uh, some navy beans that had been exposed to x-rays in the early wave of experimentation in the early 1930s. Um, And they discover a field bean, and this is in Michigan, um, that is, I think, particularly resistant um, to a certain disease that's causing problems. And so that uh, bean, which ends up being known as the Sanilac bean, is really the only example of an X-ray induced mutation that ends up in an agricultural crop um, that is grown at at any scale um, by the 1950s. So, if that that um, one success, despite all this experimentation, really gives you a, a sense um, of the uh, well, the the fortunes of this particular technological innovation. Um, but one thing I would just add to that is the other kind of commercial outgrowth that you see in terms of X-ray irradiated plants is, um, uh, some plants that are put on the market by burpee seed again, uh, in the, it turns out it, it takes them until the 1940s really to develop them, but they put on the market, um, to, it's a type of marigold flower and they claim that these have been created through exposure to X-ray radiation. They're X-ray twins, uh, and uh, and I bring this up only to highlight that there are still, you know, uh, the flower industry is different from the agricultural or agronomic crop industry. And um, the, the fortunes of some of these tools within the creation of novelty flowers is a little bit different um, just because the constraints on what those have to be able to do um, and what counts as an interesting, uh, an interesting new biological innovation are, are quite a bit different.
1: There's a shift in emphasis between part one and part two, at least in the actor's categories used to frame the technology. While X-rays promise to create variegated species made to order, the chemical colchicine, through its effects on the cell cycle and chromosome segregation specifically, could produce plants that were built to order. I asked her about this shift.
0: Yeah, so... That's an interesting point. Um, it's a little bit this difference between made and built to order is something that emerges among the actors whose whose ideas I'm charting, um, and I hadn't necessarily thought of them as as so distinct from one another. Um, but there's probably uh, there's probably something there. Um, so the story of of chromosomal mutation, if you will, uh, as it's talked about in the book, is the 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 development of interest in a in a particular chemical technology in starting in 1937 um, that allows plant breeders and others to double the number of chromosomes that are found in the cells of plants. Um, And the reason that's of interest is, um, on the one hand, straightforwardly, sometimes plants that have a doubled number of chromosomes display Um, enlarged features and characteristics, so they might have larger flowers, larger leaves, um, larger fruits, and those can be of interest for obvious reasons. Another thing that was uh, of particular interest is that um, doubling the chromosomes, especially of plants that have um, been hybridized from quite distinct lines um, which often display fertility issues. Doubling the number of chromosomes can sometimes resolve those fertility issues. So you can have uh, a hybrid that was previously sterile but might have some desirable characteristics, say like a hybrid of wheat and rye, that you then double the chromosomes of and have a fertile line. So then you can continue developing that onward. So people imagined creating new kinds of hybrid crops and, and hybrid flowers and were um, really excited. And so maybe there's a ex- certain extent to which that's the story of building to order that you've alluded to, Mikey, this imagination of um, doing something with a specific plan in mind. If the x-ray was something that created scattershot variation that you then had to you know, use to assemble what you wanted from the parts that were on hand, um, what chromosomal manipulation called to mind or, or seemed to make possible was the idea that you could tackle a breeding problem with a specific plan of action. You could create somehow to specification the, the kind of chromosomal arrangement you needed and then assemble, uh, uh, assemble the plant that you wanted from those new parts um, in precisely the way that you'd imagined at the outset. So I think those might be the distinctions uh, there.
1: In the third section, we see the involvement of the Atomic Energy Commission and the establishment of an atomic infrastructure that intersected with post-war agricultural development in interesting ways. I asked about what this trade-off looks like.
0: Right. So I think this is a tricky story. Um, I, it took me a long time in working through this material to decide on what I thought was going on. Um, the As I describe in the book, what happens after 1945 with, with significant investment by the US government, in at least in, in the story that I'm telling here in the United States, uh, in the development of various kinds of atomic science, atomic technologies, um, you see a proliferation of research really across the board that's using these atomic tools to address different kinds of research questions and and agriculture ends up being no exception there however strange it might seem to us now the idea of a kind of atomic agriculture and so the 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 various different um routes by which Uh, atomic funding for for atomic or or nuclear research um, comes to influence agriculture um, might be in you know physiological or nutrition studies of plants and animals understanding uh, nutrient cycles understanding um, you know how how uh you see radio radioisotope tracer studies of of cows and chickens um of course, what interests me is how this um, research then comes to influence plant breeding um, and so one of the direct ways in which that happens is a resurgence of interest in the use of radiation in 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 plant breeding much has happened has as had happened in the x ray era, and so um The, I don't know if I'd necessarily um, characterize it as a benefit, but the influence that you see in the agricultural science world that I was investigating is um, a number of different uh, instantiations of research programs dedicated to exploring different kinds of radiation uh, as tools for inducing heritable variation, inducing genetic mutation in crop plants, Um, and uh, uh, this uh, is something that maybe had been dismissed uh, in the 1930s as not necessarily a productive route to go down, um, but suddenly with all the resources available to explore it, it, it's an open question again, um, or at least it is to to some people working in this area. Um, So, so the basically, the influence of the Atomic Energy Commission, then, is to uh, re-engage a set of research questions that had um, lost interest um, for researchers, re-engage this question of mutation breeding by radiation-induced mutation, um, But of course, as your question pointed out, um, it's not just that the AEC influences agricultural production. It's also that industrial agriculture, especially as it's developing in the post-war years, is a a research behemoth in and of itself. Um, And so... Uh, the agricultural production, agricultural science um, is also demanding that its questions and concerns be answered. And atomic tools are one set of tools for trying to think about um, uh, creating disease-resistant peanuts or creating new strains of soybeans that will be um, better suited to the uh, ever-increasing ever industrial uh, methods that are being deployed in agricultural production. Um, so you also see the agricultural sciences um, really taking on board atomic tools as potentially solving these questions that they're really struggling to address uh, in the midst of, of, of change within agricultural production.
1: Finally, we return to the big picture story to try to explain why it was the case that despite the enthusiasm there was for earlier gene manipulation technologies, transgenic and recombinant technologies were met with a major backlash in the 1970s.
0: Yeah, so I think you know one of the things about the the technologies whose histories I've excavated here um, is that um, the the kind of Attitudes towards science and technology in the the decades that I'm charting are, I think, quite different from what we see from the mid 1960s onwards. So just as my story comes to an end, as I, um, I sort of look at how atomic technologies are starting to be used in the international sphere as well as the the national sphere, um, that uh, the there's a there's a a whole slew of things that happen in the United States, at least, to change um, people's thinking on um, scientific uh, uh, research and technological development, and to change their thinking on what the benefits um, versus the costs of such uh, research and development might be. So, for example, I'm thinking of the Burgeoning environmental movement as we see it coalesce in the late 1960s um, and then obviously grow in the 1970s. Um, I'm thinking of protests against uh, atomic weapons, against um, uh, the use of science and technology in um, military applications, especially in protests against the Vietnam War. Um, This sort of larger questioning of, of yeah basically the the good of science and technology, but also of um, um, larger structures of authority um, in in american life and so um, the context into which uh, the molecular genetic technologies of the 1970s the the, the social and cultural milieu in which, into which those um, emerge is really shifted. From the period of time that I'm talking about. Um, so the mutation technologies uh, live in a in a kind of different different cultural eco, ecosystem somehow. Um, and so transgenic technologies have to face a lot of different questions from uh, a, uh, an American, the American uh, public to whom um, they're introduced. Uh, and so that accounts a bit in part, I think, for this different reception um, that we see. Uh, And that has to do, in part, I think, with how molecular geneticists presented um, the kinds of research they were doing in the 1970s. I think if we think to the initial articles documenting the creation of the first transgenic organisms, this was all about how we have, for the first time ever, crossed species boundaries, how we are doing things that nature could never itself do um and that is that is different than saying that you're going to speed up evolution right you're going to take a natural process and just kind of ramp it up a little bit. Um, and of course, what you see among the molecular geneticists when they receive a kind of pushback against this unnatural thing they've done is to then say, "Oh, actually, um, you know, as we're discovering, there's there's horizontal gene transfer, there's natural genetic engineering, um, um, and a, a renaturalization of the kinds of tools that they are they're introducing." Um, but yeah, as these, this sort of suggests, I think there's various different things going on um, that end up being important to this different reception of of the the kind of biotechnologies that we're more familiar with, the transgenic technologies of the of the
1: 1970s and later. As we close things out, I asked Curry about her current work.
0: Yeah, so for a little while now, I've been working on um, the the quick way of saying it would be the history of seed banking. But that's the history of efforts to collect, catalog and conserve the biological diversity, the genetic diversity of agricultural crops. Um, and I came to be interested in that through the research that I did for this book, for Evolution Made to Order. Um, so I was charting the history of all these Guys and they are mostly guys out there in the world, uh, thinking that the solution to this bottleneck in breeding of needing heritable variation would be to create genetic diversity de novo right to to have it be man made to take charge of that process, but everywhere you turn in this story, there's uh an objection or a counter from someone in the plant breeding world saying why are you so obsessed with creating diversity, <laughs> creating the genetic change that you need? There's an incredible amount of genetic variation already extant in the, in the plant species uh, that we use. Uh, all we need to do is go out there in the world. We need to collect it um, and we need to, to figure out what's there and then put it to use and that that's a much better approach. Um, and so I got interested in this history of um, people who who saw the genetic diversity uh, out there in the world as, as what um, uh, was really the crucial resource for plant breeding. Uh, and, of course, there's a, a turn in that story in the middle of the 20th century in which people start worrying that industrial agriculture with its focus on um, uh, homogeneity among crops in production, which is with its focus on, on monoculture, um, is a force that tends to eliminate genetic diversity and that it's, it's being lost even though it's this incredible and essential resource for plant breeding. Um, and that's where seed banking comes into the story, the idea that we could um, save that valuable diversity that has such um, uses in agricultural production um, so that it's always available, even if it um, is something that's no longer cultivated in fields uh, around the country or indeed around the world. So, the two projects are really, uh, in a lot of ways, closely linked, although they're taking me into much different um, um, uh, worlds of imagining and, and, and practicing agricultural production.
1: Thanks for listening to new books in science, technology, and society. And remember, you can get Evolution Made to Order through the University of Chicago Press. This is part one of a series of new work on 20th century biotechnology. Look out for further interviews featuring some great new work published by the University of Chicago Press.